Hey, Steve here. Thanks for coming back for another dose of um, what I'll call curiosity quenching. <laughs> you know, I've made the point quite a few times in various episodes of the Natural Curiosity Project that curiosity is one of the most important gifts we have as a thinking species. I absolutely believe that it's the essence of our ability to understand the world around us, the sciences, the arts, and what it means to be human. It helps us to understand the challenges we face on this shared planet, the forces that shape our lives, and the nature of communication, collaboration, cooperation, and culture. My own natural curiosity causes me to ask a lot of questions out of a desire to know things. And so I get to meet a lot of really interesting people who are interesting because of the way they think or because of what they do or because of some passion they have. The person I'm interviewing in this episode, Doug Stanley, checks the box on all of those things. Doug is supremely technical, yet he's a voracious reader of pretty much anything that gets stuck in front of him, including fiction, history, philosophy, and art. We share book lists on a regular basis. Professionally, he and the company he founded are on the bleeding edge of some of the most exciting technological breakthroughs that I've been lucky to be part of. And finally, Doug's ferociously committed to the application of technology to resolve humanity's greatest challenges, which include reestablishing trust in science, making protection of the environment a real and achievable commitment rather than just a bumper sticker slogan, managing the changing climate, and putting technology into the hands of those who can deal with the things we need to deal with if we're going to leave the world a better place for our children, their children, and all the future generations that come after them. So with that, here's my conversation with Doug Stanley, the founder of Neo-Earth. Over the years, we have sort of collided on a variety of fronts, um, most recently, most urgently, and most interestingly, with regard to your world of the various manifestations of Neo. And I'd like to hear a little about that just to kind of set the stage for where we're going with this conversation. Neo, uh, not unlike any other small business, is uh, living within a pandemic. The bigger issue is that our planet is on fire and we are looking at a climate crisis that, frankly, needs to be agenda one. But staying alive and not uh, contracting COVID certainly is top of mind. Neo came about from my challenges of trying to create systems of influence or systems of change within any company. And, you know, and I'm an old guy. So frankly, I don't know if there's a department or a function or an industry or a sector, frankly, or a country that I haven't been asked to, uh, to make an incremental change at a company. And so in that time, you know, prior, frankly, prior to the internet really proliferating, uh, I started wondering how all of these things would start to function more like nature efficiently, more like the human body uh, with its voluntary and involuntary system. And uh, so I started kind of converting that into, into information technology and saying, wow, we are really on the wrong track. And so NEO really came about by my thinking about technology in a different way. My real moment, my real epiphany was when I was writing a, a capstone, which was needed to be thesis quality for my master's. And I frankly was bold enough to, to write the 25-year vision for digital uh, as it would impact media, the media industry. 
And I wrote about this software that would enable all things to interact with all other things and create seamless interoperability. Uh, now, I did not write <laughs> that I would be, be uh, swinging at that windmill and personally be the one that would go off and build it. Uh, and I kind of, so fast forward, I want to take you through a meeting that I was in. I was in a meeting at the, at the Environmental Protection Agency, and we'd been called to this meeting, uh, frankly, uh, with, with no agenda. And uh, we were asked as a group to opine on the global corroding water infrastructure. Around the world, the most common shared asset that we all depend on is, is water. Uh, water is distributed through plumbing and piping and all over the world it's corroding. And so we were asked to comment on it and, and uh, boldly an executive from GE Digital, and now we have the advantage of hindsight on how that worked out, but this executive from GE Digital stood up and boldly announced that this wasn't even a problem that GE Digital could solve it. They would simply rip out the world's water infrastructure and replace it with GE gear. So I had one of those moments where uh, my brain was completely disconnected from my mouth and I blurted out, did you just really say that? And then I looked at our host and said, did I just say that out loud? And he said, you did, Mr. Stanley. And you said exactly what we were all thinking. Thank you. So that was my moment. I started thinking about at that time, if we don't look at global issues, societal issues with a different perspective, we're going to be in big trouble. In fact, I went on to trademark that, that term societal innovation. And it's the name of our holding company. Um, maybe to a fault, we don't market that. Um, one thing that COVID has done is really bring me back to the purpose of our business, which is to apply this technology that we've created towards uh, participating in the resolution of big societal issues. You just completed something called climate reality training. Walk me through that. Look, at, I have always been deeply aware. You know, we are, we are friends in literature both avid readers. So I'm certainly not naive to the crisis. But as I've been contemplating life and direction and things during this stay-at-home period, I've, I've really thought about the elevation of beyond the pandemic, which I've mentioned, is it is the fact that the planet is on fire. And so, frankly, I, I didn't view myself as prepared to talk about it with enough certainty to understand the science of climate change. And like, and I've read books and I've read articles and I've read white papers. I've listened to lectures, but personally, I, I didn't feel like it is ingrained deeply enough in me to consider myself well-informed enough that in fact, I could solicit change in somebody else. And I think as, as a planet, we are at that precipice where it's not voluntary change is a coming and it needs to come quickly. We're late. So I, um, I did a little bit of research and I, frankly, I, I, I didn't understand the reality of climate reality project, how the reality of the climate reality project. I didn't know how big it was. And when I saw really what they were doing, what their mission was, what their purpose, what their approach is, their purpose is to train advocates how to create a community that is committed to saving this planet. And so I decided to look into it. Coincidentally, there was a, a program coming up. I decided to apply. So I'm officially a certified climate reality leader trainer. There are 30,000 of us 
in the world and 150 different countries. So it's not like it's it's something difficult. I mean, I, frankly, I would recommend it for anybody, even if they don't become an advocate. It's the greatest fact-based, science-based training program, I believe, available. So and even though, yes, it's founded by Al Gore, it's not political. There are a few times that you, it, it, the, the program does mention the current administration, of course, but frankly, not in an assaulted manner. It's 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 really about the, the this agenda is bigger than the current administration. So presumably you worked through a lot of different issues, a lot of hot topics and so on related to climate. What surprised you about the training? I think what really surprised me is how deeply entrenched it was in science. The caliber of experts that participated in it, globally eminent. The other thing that surprised me were the facts, things that, frankly, I was not aware of. Every day, every 24 hours, we as humans spew over 152 million tons of man-made pollutants into the atmosphere every day without stop. And we know the impact of that. We, 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 we get the fear statistics every time we turn on the local news. We look around us and today there's over 3 million acres in California on fire. California is not even a tip of the iceberg on the fires that, that, that take place throughout the planet. I mean, the Amazon's on fire. Most of South America is on fire because of the lack of, of government intervention and policies, frankly. So I think the biggest thing that surprised me was <laughs> I was completely naive as a well-informed person. I was completely naive to the magnitude of the problem. But I also know that it's it can be turned. Even during COVID-19, when we stayed at home, immediately the planet started to adjust. Now it's, it's back, right? It was a temporary fix. But uh, I do believe that it's it's not too late. The other part about the surprise I got from the climate reality training is that everything is interrelated. There's not a topic that we can mention, uh, whether it's the the 50% extinction of the planet's animal species or the fires or the mass flooding. There's no topic that isn't interrelated here. This is a zero-sum game that we as mankind are causing. So when you flip it, and you start thinking about the economic side, that every business is impacted by this. You know, there's only a couple of ways to make money. You sell more, you lower your cost, or you raise your prices. I guess that's three. And when you think about the devastation, let's just put it into the example of California. Think about the ripple effect of those fires and the cost. Who's going to pay for it? There's not a slush fund that says, okay, we got you covered. I think that the financial sector as a whole and the experts that I would lean heavily on is an organization called Cirrus and it's led by its CEO, Mindy Luber. They're, she's uh, a wonderful speaker from TED and many conferences, but they are, in my mind, the most successful advocates around the financial implications, the economic implications of climate change and the need for sustainable practices. So I'm not the expert, but today when a company like BlackRock comes out and says that one in four humans on earth do not have access to fresh water. And by 2030, if we don't change things, one in two. So they're looking at it purely financially. Private equity firms coming together 
private equity firms that manage over 47 trillion of assets. This is about greed to them. These assets cannot sustain the cost implications of climate change. So, you know, it may not be around altruistic purposes. This is purely financial. And, and look at, follow the money. When the money acknowledges that the planet is on fire, and if we don't do something, our fiduciary duties, when in fact we will fail, well, okay. So despite the practices that are currently under place, the money is moving towards sustainability, and it's moving there rapidly. One of the things I talk about a lot is how you tell a compelling story in the corporate world. One of the lessons of executive storytelling is this message that says, if you want people to believe what you're selling, what you're saying, what you're advocating, you've got to give them something they can cling to, something they can understand. And I want to take you back to a place where you put your money where your mouth is. And you said, I believe that the technologies that we're developing can actually make a difference. And I want to talk a little bit about a small farm in Arizona that is growing now world-class produce in a region that by anyone's estimation should not be producing world-class produce, and yet it is. There's a small vineyard uh, 20 miles from the Mexican border, Wilcox, Arizona. We were asked by the founders, Kim and Phil Asmundson, that if our technology could make their lives a bit easier, But we started talking about the bigger picture and the issues that they had and the commitment they'd made to farming what they hoped to be the finest wine grapes uh, in the state of Arizona, minimally, but maybe more broadly. The produce is actually fine wine grapes. And I guess when we started, they weren't fine wine grapes. And, um, And frankly, we knew that if we could treat that farm as an automated system powered by our software, uh, we knew that the results would be significant. Now, Steve, you were on the, the webinar. You were host of the webinar when we first revealed this to the world. We did not know that leaders of every major agriculture company, NASA, a climatologist, agronomist, we did not know that over 400 people would be participating, and they wouldn't let us off the phone. I think in their minds, it's the first time they'd seen a single tool create that interoperable farm as a system. And so uh, the funny thing at the time is, despite the the incredibly positive feedback we got, you know, there was also the skepticism. Well, you guys don't know anything about farming. We'll wait and see if we get results. So now we've been installed at Deep Sky Vineyard for about five years, and the results are staggering. The results are so staggering that major universities are now perking up their ears and eyes and saying, oh, my God. This software works. And so let me just share that with you. We now operate that farm with 80% less water than they were using. Now you can say, well, they were using too much to begin with. We're growing fine wine grapes with less than an acre foot of water in the deserts of Arizona. Now that's less than they used to grow cotton. We're using 20% less energy and there are no renewable sources. The new agenda that we're creating, we're going to be talking about that this farm should be 100% renewable. We're using 40% less labor. And oh, by the way, we have upped the quality so significantly that they're now receiving accolades from the Wine Spectator. And they've been acknowledged by their region as a vineyard designate, which means 
even their competitors will put the name Deep Sky Vineyard if they're lucky enough to purchase any fruit from them. When this started, they were 100% wholesale grower. They're now moving to 100% direct to consumer. And oh, by the way, they've invested heavily in a really gorgeous new tasting room. So they've shifted their business model from hobbyist wholesale growers to frankly, they're producing fine wine and selling it directly to consumers. Were there any surprises along the way other than it worked? I think the biggest surprise we had was the level of simplicity that we were able to provide to the farmers. One example is there are six primary seasons in growing of fine wine grapes. And they tell us what that season is. And they do it by literally moving a bar in a little user interface feature. Now, they don't know behind the scenes that there's a massive algorithm <laughs> that they are actually tuning and adjusting. So I think the thing that surprises us is just how simple we've made it to the user. And so we've been able to take, frankly, a, a pretty complex technology and simplify it to the user beyond beyond our imagination. Now, I believe that's going to get become even more simple. But as I understand it, this software that you're talking about, it's not just for vineyards or small farms, right? No, no, it's not. It's um, it, frankly, it's it's agnostic to the inputs. And so and it has no bias. So it's, it doesn't require a certain type of sensor. It doesn't require a certain type of operating system or network. Frankly, it, it leverages uh, efficiently whatever is available to use. At Deep Sky Vineyard, we have a, a small rural SIM. They like to tell us it's a 4G SIM. It's not because the total telephony we receive is 10.3. But we only use less than a meg to, to create this Internet-powered vineyard. But we also do it by distributing computation to the vineyard locally. So it's not dependent on the Internet. It could never be. <laughs> not with a 10.3 rural SIM. Most of the time, we wouldn't have access so it, it operates efficiently using multiple modes of networking, off-the-shelf sensors. It's highly instrumented. It's available on our website. You can look at it any day. It's a read-only version. But it lets you play around and click on buttons and see what's actually happening at the vineyard. I'm pleased to say that we're going to go through a, a second-generation install in this off-season. We've just finished harvest. And despite it being a miserable year, courtesy of Mother Nature, it's been a successful year for the vineyard. So we're going to be connecting Deep Sky and Wilcox. Uh, we have another piece of land in Elgin that we're going to be connecting, which is connected to their tasting room and a few other things that we may be doing. So we're now it's exciting as we did. It started off as a test and now we're actually looking to to productize, to do an installation that we know what we're doing and have it to where it could be scalable. But, yeah, it's it's crop agnostic. Okay, but what about scalability, Doug? I guess what I'm asking is this. Does NEO only work on larger scale operations? Agriculture is where great tech goes to die. We wanted to enable this technology to be deployed on the user's terms. And it's a fact that the ideal regenerative farm is about an acre. You know, the bulk of the farms in the world on the planet are an acre or less. So NEO is actually built to to be installed in that kind of environment. And and frankly, I'm going to get on a soapbox a bit. You know, the mega farms, the mega, the mega commercial farms, you know, as long as they're incentivized by the government to one metric, which is yield, 
And as long as that industry is led by uh, dominant chemical and seed companies, uh, they're the last users because, frankly, they don't care. They have one metric. They're subsidized to that one metric. And, frankly, there's no penalty if they are destroying the planet while they're doing it. Now, that's part of the change that has to come. The United States agriculture industry is accountable for destruction of the wetlands, dead zones in the Gulf. Make no mistake about it. But as long as they're incentivized, and this isn't a knock on the farmer. This is a system driven by the government. They're playing by the rules. In fact, I have a, a great deal of empathy for those that continue to farm. But as long as the system is broken, uh, it's not going to change. So, so no, our technology is, it can be installed in a home garden. And uh, that's, to me, the exciting direction that I want to take our tools and our tooling to continue to make it easier and easier and easier to use. We had a fun experiment. We, we took it into a high school. Now, granted, it was a STEM school, but they were kids. They were grade nine through grade 12. We didn't give them a lot of instruction. In fact, people qualified to train on NEO didn't even attend the meeting. But, you know, these children, two hours later, created a facial recognition gumball machine using nothing but the tools available in our platform. No code, low-code tools, assembly of logic in a manner and it, it, it told us a lot, but it also it also was encouraging to me because we haven't scratched the surface on simplicity. I think about where we're at in 10 years to allow a network or a system to be formed simply by giving it human instruction through voice. So that's that's where I'd like to take it. The latest iteration of NEO is NEO Earth. What are your aspirations for that organization? Yeah, the latest application of NEO is NEO Earth. We, we know from our experience with Deep Sky Vineyard and we've met with every major ag tech company. Uh, you know, I met with one of the big three just last week. And it's funny, you, you get, you get a sympathetic, almost, almost a jealous reaction from these large chemical companies that, that wish they in fact could be a purpose built organization. Uh, I think that, you know, most people don't want to destroy the planet. So aligning with a company whose sole purpose, in fact, is to sell chemical and, and uh, genetically modified seeds, uh, uh, seeds that produce genetically modified crops, you know, at some point that's got to wear on the, on the human, on the citizen of the planet. We know that we can't dabble in the topic. So we've created an entity called Neo-Earth. And even though we own a trademark on the term Neo-Ag, I think it's beyond agriculture because it does go into the management of natural resources. You know, one, one example is in the state of Arizona, there are 250,000 unmonitored wells, commercial wells. We have one at Deep Sky Vineyard. And all around, these wells run low. And for the farmer, they just dig the hole a little deeper, which means they obviously start to infringe and encroach on the aquifers. Now, this is water. This is borrowed water. <laughs> Arizona doesn't have water. They're at now at the back end of the Colorado River Water Treaty. And now, I don't know if you've seen it, but now the state of Utah, who is as far upstream as you can get, is beginning to uh, turn litigious on its share of the Colorado River. I learned recently that the state of Colorado, 80, 88% of its fresh water goes to agriculture in the state of Colorado. How many people even know that 
Colorado grows any product, any, any, any food. They do. The scary thing about that, 88% of that fresh water is, is distributed to farmers who use what's called flooding techniques for irrigation. That means they open the spigot and they turn it off when they want. So here's the state of Colorado, the one, probably one of the most environmentally sensitive places on earth that, that allocate 88% of their fresh water to farmers who have zero accountability or responsibility to be good stewards of that water. I don't care how old these treaties are. Those are things that have to change. So Neo-Earth is an entity solely focused on that change. In fact, it may end up becoming a, a 501c3. Currently, we're modeling where it will be a commercial and a not-for-profit. But one thing we do know is that this will be a purpose-based company. Uh, it's going to be a B Corp. And so it's, it's a longer horizon. It's, you think about it different financially, but it is laser focused on the societal implications associated with the creation of food and the use of natural resources. So Doug, you've intimated a couple of times that the technology you've created, how do I say this, transcends agriculture. Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, Steve, we spent a little bit of time talking about what we've done in agriculture and we've got a good track record and we've got university endorsement and partnerships. I'm going to tell you about something else that I'm excited about. Unfortunately, the, the, the name of the, of the customer I have to keep out. Think of a very large consumer product goods company. And, and this consumer products good company makes laundry detergent. It's one of many products. So for the first time in this company's history, they're leveraging Neo to do research inside of homes. Consumer research, frankly, is done with pen and paper or automated uh, toll, uh, phone calls. Uh, press one if you agree, two if you disagree. But that's about as technical as they get. This company called us. They had attempted to do some in-home digital research inside of a laundry room. And the approach to using it was a, a colossal failure. Well, uh, <laughs> they decided to try NEO. And NEO is now in a 1,000 homes doing consumer research as it relates to the practices of doing laundry in home. But there's more to that story. Because it was digitally connected, when COVID-19 first became aware to the public that there was a problem mid to late March, people started staying home. So we were able to front run the implications of consumers staying home and doing their laundry more frequently. In the first three months of COVID, that company realized 145 million dollars of quantified financial benefits because they were able to predict the uptick in demand. But that's not where this story ends. The real epiphany came to me when I started thinking about, it's not about consumer research. How can we take that awareness and turn it into a product? Well, Steve, there are 2 billion laundry rooms in the world, 2 billion. And those laundry rooms are the second highest users of water and energy in the home. So what if we could put a smart node inside that node and bring crowd-based wisdom and analytics into the practice of laundry in the home? Think about the, the financial implications of that. What if these producers of washing machines and laundry detergent and softeners and all the other accessories that go with doing laundry could predict usage 
instead of reacting to it in the typical supply chain manner. And, and oh, by the way, what if we as a community could become more efficient at that? And maybe doing laundry wouldn't be the second highest user of water and power in a home. Maybe it became the third or the fourth. So with two billion addressable market homes that are becoming an addressable market, I'm starting to think about how we solve that. But now let's flip the coin to CPG companies. We all know that they're being crushed by the major e-commerce retailer. What if they could, in fact, provide their product to the users without that user having to go to the store? What if you could predict the need for uh, an auto replenish and they become direct-to-consumer products? It's about convenience. Look, at one thing that COVID has done is clearly post-pandemic, more people will be having products delivered automatically to their home. So now we have a predictive laundry room that is also environmentally efficient, green, so to speak. I think we could get very excited about that. And, and so I'm starting to think about that. So who knows? You know, maybe that will be within Neo Earth or maybe that will be a separate entity under our holding company, Societal Innovation. But, but we definitely have demonstrated success with this major CPG company. So that's another application. And it's only because we were able to take that computation and the total hardware requirement to deliver this service to this CPG company is less than $100. And I frankly think it can become less than $25. So what if I could create a smart laundry room for less than $25 cost? Now today we have thermostats connected to the internet, but those thermostats don't use energy and water. Laundry rooms do. We talk a lot about fatigue. And what I mean by that is that a lot of people are tired of hearing about climate change or global warming or whatever the current phrase is. How do we keep people engaged, motivated, interested, committed? I think we take away the complexity. I mean, people will be engaged when the state of California figures out how to pay for the three million acres that are on fire and they impose a burden on the people. I think that continued destruction of the planet is at a point that this isn't going to be a hoax or a, or some whack job, you know, ex politician who was so passionate about it. He created a, you know, a, a, a tell all you know, inconvenient truth movie. Um, this is about reality. This is about human survival. And so I believe that number one, it starts with simplifying. Number two, I believe it's about unifying. The government's got to be involved here. The current administration has attempted to unwind 100 environmentally sensitive policies. The most egregious, frankly, got to the Supreme Court, which was the Clean Water Act. And thank goodness, even the weighted Supreme Court uh, saw our way through that. But as long as we as a government reward and promote policies that are destroying the planet, uh, things aren't going to change. But we as a citizenship, and, and not to get political, but people can get riled up. We've seen it. We're living it right now. When you watch the NFL and its owners embrace Black Lives Matter, people will drive change. And to me, that's what gives me hope. But sure, there's some blocking and tackling. I mean, the first thing we've got to do is, is re-engage in the, in the 
uh, Paris Climate Accord. I think that the simplicity is it's got to be led by government. The next step down, I believe, are educational institutions. You know, this isn't voodoo science. This isn't a political issue at all. This is about mankind. This is science. And when climate change gets driven into curriculum, even at the lowest levels, I can imagine a five-year-old, a children's book that, that without creating fear and panic and nightmares, but a way to begin the awareness starts at children. You know, Steve, we'll be gone before this problem is resolved. You know, even though I, I believe science is going to keep me alive to 110, if it, if it fails to, I, I probably won't get to, to witness the end game here of, of, you know, a planet that is actually sustainable. But I, I do think that it, it's around simplicity. It's a grassroots initiative. Frankly, it doesn't start at the top. It starts at the bottom and the top becomes accountable to serve its citizenship. So, Doug, we could talk for days and let's face it, we often have. But we should let our listeners get back to their lives. So any last thoughts you'd like to share before we close? When you realize that countries are planning how to move their citizens to another place that's happening right now because they understand that their country will be underwater. Pick your, your topic, whether it's the warming of the ocean or the, or the ever increasing eliminations of, of animal species, or frankly, the inconvenience of wildfire. Whatever your particular issue is, climate change affects everything that's important to you, including the survivor, survival of your children and your grandchildren and your grandchildren's children. So I, I, th- I think humanity will solve this. I think they'll rally. I think they'll rally. Thanks, Doug. And with that, I'll wrap this up. Thank you to Doug Stanley for a great conversation and for sharing a combination of hope and challenge with us. If you'd like to know a little bit more about the work that Doug and his company are doing, just browse over to the company website at n.io. That's the letter n.io. And if you'd like to dive a bit deeper what I like to call into the Sheldon Cooper layer uh, of the Neo platform. I've created a shorter follow-on episode to this one that's just filled with geek speak. It's not overwhelming. It's just a little bit more technical. Thank you for listening and for being curious. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.